1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayyadabdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to uh, Matteo Mohamed Farzane about his book, Iranian Women and Gender in the Iran-Iraq War, which was published in 2021 by Syracuse University uh, Press. Uh, Matteo is Associate Professor of History at Northeastern Illinois University, who has interest in Iranian women and gender in war, Islamic clerics and modern politics, constitutionalism and reform and religious nationalism. Matteo, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, to start off, uh, could, you plus, uh, could you please tell us a bit about your personal and research background? Sure. Well, um,
0: I was born and raised in the southwest of Iran, in the city of Abbas, in 1967. So I am 54 years old. Don't mind saying that. (laughs) And uh, um, (laughs) when the war happened in 1980, uh, my family and I were uprooted and displaced, and we moved to the city of Esfahan. And uh, after uh, four years, I emigrated uh, from Iran. And after a short time in Switzerland and in Cyprus, uh, I settled in Southern California and finished my high school uh, education, uh, received my high school diploma in 1985, and then went on to college and finished my uh, degree. First degree was in nursing and I became a a nurse for some time, uh, for about seven years. I worked in the nursing field. And um, in 2000, I went back to school, uh, got a new degree in history, a master's in history, and then finally PhD in 2010, and then moved to Chicago to take up the job that I have now as an assistant professor in 2010. And uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, Uh, I'm an associate professor of history now. Uh,
1: Thank you, Mattel. There is often a story behind every book. Uh, What's the story behind yours? Um, How did the book come about, and how long did it take for you to write it? So
0: the story behind the book, uh, as I mentioned in the uh, preface of the book, uh, was that I was a war volunteer with the Iranian Red Crescent, which is equivalent to the Red Cross. Uh, And uh, as a teenage volunteer, I saw a lot of people donating things uh, to the war effort in the 80s. I got involved from 82 to 84 before I immigrated. And uh, I used to see a lot of women uh, giving their worldly possessions. And of course, uh, living in Esfahan, which the province, uh, the city and its surrounding area, gave uh, the most amount of martyrs or the people that actually went to war and got killed. And um, I would see processions of uh, bodies that would be brought back in coffins. And I would go to those and I would see the wailing mothers and the very um, graphic scenes of mothers and sisters and grandmothers and relatively most of the women relatives of the martyr. Uh, uh, how they would suffer in in uh, the process uh, that it was a war. And also I saw, you know, women nurses and you know first responders and what have you. But um, several years ago uh, in 2009, uh, to be exact, I went back after 20 some odd years to the Southwest and uh, in one of the mosques in city of Shar in the Southwest, I noticed there was not a single photo of a woman who had um, resisted um, the Iraqi army from occupying the city. And they held up and they fought along uh, the side of men, volunteer men and the regular army. Uh, That was entirely all male uh, uh, soldiers and officers. And uh, not a mention of them was anywhere. And that's where the trigger for writing this book actually happened. So I wanted to be the voice of women that uh, I argue in my book, uh, they ran into hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Iranian women that either directly or indirectly uh, participated in one way or another. And I talk about 18 different roles that they played, and uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about that. So that, uh, that that was the start of it. And uh, I always say, too, in historical studies, people usually choose subjects, uh, for the most part, that uh, is somewhat psychologically they're connected to or mentally connected to. And I think for anyone who's been in a war environment, what happens is that we keep asking questions of ourselves, or at least I do. You know, why am I in the United States? Why am I an immigrant? Why was I uprooted? Uh, Why did I have to leave? the hometown that you know uh um, i have so much good memories for my childhood and and once that happens you kind of want to find out what the truth is what the facts are and and you have your own perspective obviously about things and when it becomes academic it becomes not only enjoyable but also uh, uh fulfilling in the sense you kind of had a lot of answers for the questions that you always ask yourself so I think those two reasons were as to why I uh, uh thought about writing a book. How long did it take? Um in 2009 when I uh kind of got the idea that a book like this needs to be written because there's yet to be, you know, one like it till I actually published it in uh, uh 2021. 20, uh, um I noticed that um, I couldn't dedicate the time that I needed to do research do it justice the way uh, I should uh, as somebody who was trained in Western institutions, mainly in the United States. So uh, it was in the back burner, as we say, and I started gathering sources every time I would go to Iran. And uh, when my first book came out and uh, uh, I kind of moved along and, you know, that was behind me. I wanted to work on the book. So on and off from, I would say, 2013, 2014, I really don't remember when I started to write the first sentences or the words, but it was, you know, it was after I published my uh, first book that I seriously started to engage with it. So I would say it took about four or five years. Uh,
1: There are, Uh, A couple of things you mentioned that I want to follow up on a bit later and discuss with you in more depth. But before that, uh, I wanted to ask a a kind of a methodology related question, and that is what sort of sources have you uh, consulted when uh, writing this book and researching for this book?
0: So uh, for those who are listening to this podcast and might not be familiar with uh, field of Iranian studies or historical studies in in Iran. Um, The difficulty with studying the war is that we really don't have a centralized archives um, that people can access. And uh, doing any research in social studies or humanities for that matter, in Iran is sort of like uh, playing Russian roulette. You know, um, you don't know who's watching, you know, over your shoulder, and what kind of uh, reaction the officials would have once you find out? Once they find out that you're researching something that they feel like they own it, as as the uh, the narrative of the war is a state narrative in essence, and that's what gets promoted. So, anybody who wants to research something that the state owns or uh, claims that it owns, it becomes kind of You know, uh, Harry, as we say, it becomes kind of problematic. So uh, when I started gathering sources, I started with visiting bookstores that were dedicated to the war narrative. And there are several institutions dedicated to that that are state-sponsored. So the Islamic Republic uh, uh, pays for and organizes and maintains these organizations. So I started reading their literature, and they have a vast... Collection of books about the war, and uh, at the time that I started, not too many women had written about their experiences in the war, which what I was really interested in. So I started reading the memoirs of men. So let's say the commanders of the Revolutionary Guards that were at one point, you know, uh, uh, foot soldiers or you know, uh, entry level volunteers as as uh, uh, young lads. And uh, I noticed that none of them actually mentioned uh, the idea of their the women in their lives being involved in the war. Because the way they looked at it was, well, we went to the war, we did all the sacrifices and the women were just home taking care of the kids or you know, the, the family base or the home base. And so that became a historical uh, uh, truth for me that by not talking about them, Somebody needs to talk about it. I don't know if that's clear or not, but I started reading between the lines. That became my first source, essentially. And then I started uh, searching articles about the war. So I started from 1980, September 2nd, when the war started, uh, to the day that the war ended or the armistice uh, took hold because officially Iran and Iraq are still at war. There's only a uh, uh, um, ceasefire still in effect um In July of 1988. So I counted, and there were over 20,000 articles that were written about the war specifically. And then I started looking at those articles, see how many of them actually used in their uh, either the titles of the articles or inside the articles anything mentioning words, uh, Persian words that refer to women, woman. Uh, um, uh, sisters, which they refer to women in in the Islamic Republic's uh, uh, vocabulary or jargon, rather. Um, The idea of mothers or mothers of martyrs or what have you. And I noticed that out of 20 plus thousand articles, only 91 articles were dedicated or mentioned anything about women. So that became a Big thing in in my analysis. Then I started, then books, I got lucky and books and articles, more books and articles started to get published in Iran with the most famous one being Da, or Mother, who was the account, and I use that a lot in my book, of this young woman, 16-year-old Zahra Hussaini, who had participated and gotten involved in combat against the Iraqis based on her uh, memoir. And uh, there it was. Uh, more and more started uh, uh, people started to write about their experiences. So I used the same sources that the Islamic Republic had put out. And I kind of, that's what historians do. We, we use the same sources that others use for a variety of reasons. And, and uh, from a historical perspective, we kind of would say, we turn it upside down, we turn it on its head. And we look at it from a very different angle. And that's what I did. I looked at it from uh, the uh, expression of gender, how it was done uh, before the war, during the war, and after the war. And then I looked at it from a woman's perspective. And I used their stories to kind of contextualize all of that. And in effect, historicize their involvement in the war. Uh,
1: but... Um... I mean, the first thing that I want to follow up on regarding what you said earlier about uh, researching on uh, women who had different roles in war and, and different capacities is that, uh, could you give us a very brief history of uh, Iranian women's involvement uh, during the eight-year war? I mean, in what capacities and to what degree were uh, women involved? And the second question is that, why do we hear uh, so little about women's involvement in war? As you just mentioned, uh, which I believe is not limited to the Iranian context, but since we are talking about you know, Iranian context, um, could you tell us the reason why?
0: Sure, let me answer the second question first, so I don't forget it. I, I tend to forget things, so sure. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the reason why we don't uh, uh, hear about women in wars is uh, part of a global phenomenon that war as a violent act Uh, um, is usually taken by men to be their domain. So it doesn't matter which war we're talking about, uh, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the two world wars, the Cold War, uh, which was not a conventional war in some sense, uh, uh, the wars in Latin America, the wars in in China, uh, in Japan, in Korea. uh, All the wars pretty much have a male-dominated narrative. Because uh, accolades such as bravery, uh, such as prowess, such as patience, such as sacrifice, uh, all are basically exclusive domains or something that actually men do. And that's what uh, um, the... I should say, the environment or societies basically want. Well, that's what men actually want people to understand. And uh, all of these wars that I just mentioned and all the ones that I didn't mention, in essence, from times immemorial, uh, women have always been involved in wars, either directly or indirectly. And uh, the reason why we don't hear about them, because nobody writes about them, or if they write about them, they get kind of marginalized in some way. And I, I think that has to do with with a, a, a sociology of how people think about wars and, and mentally how uh, we are kind of trained as humans in our families, in our societies, in our communities, not to think of war, immediately think about women when we hear the war in essence. Uh, So we we make a differentiation like that. So I think that's the reason. The roles that you were talking about, uh, uh, what roles they were playing in, and I said there were like 18 roles. So the most basic ones, uh, I would say, um, were the roles that were women that actually volunteered uh, to participate. So these would be women that would run thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of uh, soup kitchens, as we call them, or neighborhood uh, uh, cooking efforts that would make food anywhere from, you know, baked beans to uh, bread, to soup, to casseroles, to uh, simple uh, uh, snacks of cheese and bread Uh, that would be all uh, um, sort of like put into little packages and sent to the front. So that was the most basic way you could do it. They got involved by donating. They would donate as uh, uh, material things, as precious as maybe their gold earrings or bangles, uh, or at the, the highest and the most tragic way they would offer their sons. They would agree and they would push their sons. They would push their husbands. They would push and recommend and tell their men in the family to go to war, knowing that the, uh, uh, the worst case scenario, which happened for hundreds of thousands of people, would be that they would die or they would become disabled or they would uh, uh, be captured as a prisoner of war or they would go missing, which is the case today. So um, that's the most dramatic uh, participation. And then you have other roles, such as uh, females or women that would actually surgeons, Uh, I talk about one woman who flew reconnaissance missions uh, uh, as a pilot. I talk about uh, um, first responders uh, that were mostly women. I talk about women combatants, uh, instructors, drivers, photographers, journalists. Uh, What else? and uh, uh, people that uh, armed uh, ammunition depots people that dig you know dug graves uh, people that uh, you know uh, readied the bodies to be buried in in city of khuram and Abadan for time being and women that actually protected their villages in the cases that i have in in the province of uh, uh, kermanshah or in Kurdistan or other places so these are the roles and again once you put them together, then it's uh, a little bit easier to contextualize that this is a war that involves all women and not just just a select group of people. And that's the, uh, the unfortunate mistake that a lot of people make in the case of the Iran-Iraq war. Not only the war is pretty much unknown to a lot of people, but even the people who know it, they know it from a, a state's perspective that doesn't talk about women for that matter. And there are various reasons for that also that we can probably get into later on. But uh, when it comes to women's participation, it's an all-encompassing involvement. It's not just one group of people. Another thing that I want to add to this response is the overwhelming uh, majority of women that I came across and I researched and interviewed and wrote about in the book, Uh, They come from um, various various ethnic backgrounds, so they're not necessarily Persian backgrounds. Uh, They could be Kurds, they could be uh, Lors, they could be uh, Azeris or Turkish, uh, they could be Arab uh, uh, women or Turkmen women uh, and women from other places. Uh, The overwhelming majority came from a lower socioeconomic background, and the overwhelming part of them were actually non-educated or undereducated, uh, which was a fascinating find for me because then in that regard, because of their statements that they make in, their, in the articles that they write or the books that I discuss in, the, in my book, is that they're extremely patriotic. And, and that was one observation that I did not think I would ever come across.
1: Fascinating. Um, and uh, although, you know, um, the, uh, your women came from, you know, different backgrounds from, you know, um, in, um, in terms of, you know, ethnicity or, you know, socio uh, a couple of your chapters have an exclusive focus on women in two Iranian cities, namely Khurram Shah and uh, Abadan. Uh, could you tell our listeners the reason behind focusing on these two cities in particular?
0: Sure. I think that chapter goes on for like ever, right? (laughs) It goes on for like 30 pages or so. (laughs) And the reason why I focus on Khuram Shah Rabudan is the majority of combat involvement of women actually takes place in these two cities. And um, for people who read it, uh, they would be maybe surprised that uh, the majority of women that actually stay while the cities are getting evacuated and while the men don't want them there, these women in these two cities actually fight to stay. And some of them actually are abused uh, uh, by their own families. They are, uh, uh, they're battered by their own families for uh, uh, disobeying the orders to leave the city because the fear was as uh, there is evidence that um, the immediate villages uh, or small towns that came under the occupation of the Iraqis in the first few months of the war in 1980, uh, women were uh, assaulted, raped, and, and killed at um, you know, um, in unbelievable ways, burned at sometimes, and just left there. And the news had traveled already, which is part of how war is fought. Sometimes the news of the terror that's taking place you know, miles away travels faster. Than the, than the invading army that's coming through. And that really creates a very horrible uh, situation in the minds of people that are hearing all these things. Well, guess what? These women actually didn't run away. They stayed. And they wanted to actually defend their cities, defend their country uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, one being patriotism, the other being, uh, in their own words, uh, being good Muslims. So they put it in an Islamic sort of a framework, which is fascinating by itself as well. So um Hurem Shahr and Abadhan embody the idea of everything that actually women do in the war. And um, not only they volunteer to get involved in combat and shooting and carrying weapons and actually getting killed or getting captured, but also they do the most basic thing, which is having a you know, soup kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. So not only you see the soup kitchens, a women coming to volunteer uh, um, in these two cities when the war starts on September 22nd, 1980, but at the same time, the women that are very far, in the very far corners of Iran, in the northeast, in the southeast, in the northwest, uh, they stay there. They don't travel, but they participate the same way. And they send their men to do exactly what these women are doing with their brothers and, you know, uh, um, fathers and husbands and what have you. So if for nothing else, I think if I were to write a shorter version of this book and talk about women's involvement, I think just talking about women of Shar and Abadan would do it justice to kind of uh, highlight or showcase how these women actually got involved. That's why it went on it seemed like forever right but uh what i've done in the in the book is i've tried to showcase every single woman that i discuss based on the information that i get from them or from other places that they don't necessarily want to divulge themselves and i try to contextualize their background into their involvement in the war and uh i think that comes across as i hear from people that have read the book and make comments or reviews that are coming out to be the most effective. So that's why the book was 800 pages originally, but we managed to cut it down to just under 500 pages. And that's because I wanted to have those stories. And Khora and on uh, um, are kind of highlighted in that. Regard. Yes. yes.
1: Um, something else that I wanted to follow up on uh, is um, that you earlier mentioned uh, and that uh, some of these women were captured or taken as prisoners of war. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about that?
0: Sure. Uh, Even this is not a very well-known or acknowledged uh, sort of uh, truth in the state's narrative in Iran, and the public doesn't know much about it. But uh, officially, Iran had uh, tens of thousands of uh, POWs uh, that served um, as you know, time in, in Iraq while the war was going on. And uh, what happened was uh, we find out that officially the state says there is only uh, 41 female POWs and in some other sources we have 171 POWs. But in other places we read that there were a lot more than that. Uh, The ones that have actually written about their experience for serving uh, anywhere between, I think, like 20 months, if I'm not mistaken, to 26 months for some of them are a group, uh, two groups. There's a group of four women that were kind of imprisoned together in in one cell and in one camp. They served time before they were uh, uh, repatriated. And then there is one woman, uh, Khadij Amir Shikar, who was captured uh, while she was trying to evacuate the city with her husband in Dashtar uh, Hormuzgan in, um, or in Dashtar Abbas. So uh, in, in that regard, um, these women actually served. Uh, in the case of the four women, uh, they were serving as volunteers in the city of Khoramshah uh, and in Abadan. And they were captured and for the longest time nobody knew about their whereabouts so they were missing in action there was no evidence as to who has captured them or killed them or buried them Uh, the government of iraq the uh, baithi government at the time with saddam hussein being the president and the leader of the party had decided to keep these women under lock and key in political uh, prisons in downtown Baghdad, the Al-Rashid prison. And uh, they were trying to extract information from them because one of the things that they couldn't believe is that women actually volunteered to go to war. And they thought these women were trained spies or trained operatives that had been sent to the front or that had remained in these two cities of Khuram, and Abadan in order to be captured to somehow delivering information to the Iranians. I don't know how, but that's what they were thinking. So from the perspective of gender roles, from an Iraqi perspective, they were kind of baffled that the Iranian women actually would do such a thing. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but uh, it, it, it was a fascinating find also to see how the Iraqis were not only shocked that they have women, but they would not divulge any information based on their own statements that they published later on. So I talk about them and uh, um, the horrible conditions that they're kept in, uh, not being able to shower for months, sometimes uh, losing all the hair because of lice and all the uh, you know um, terrible conditions that they were kept in. Um, the lack of humanity uh, in some instances, but at the same time too, there are some, very positive signs that humans can act differently uh, even when they are the enemy. And and I have those included in there because the prisoners of war actually talk about those, the humanitarian aids that they receive from the prisoner guards, which is, I think, fantastic too, if you really think about it. So uh, I try to portray uh, uh, the Iraqi army not in a Negative light because I'm Iranian and I don't want my patriotism to get a, you know, hold of me that way. So I want to be truthful as to what they're reporting and I want to convey that to the reader. Uh, And and uh, that's done in the chapter that I talk about POWs. One thing about the POWs is that once uh, they go on a a hunger strike and they force the government because they were dying essentially. Uh, to allow them to meet with Red Cross uh, officials that essentially were in charge of finding out who's a POW, or to notify their families in Iran, what have you. And they would do the same thing inside Iran. Uh, once they find out, um, they are kept in camps, in regular POW camps, where thousands and thousands of Iranian men were kept. And that dynamics between Iranian men actually seeing Iranian women in enemy territory as POWs, that is enlightening all by itself, too. Because they, too, see Iranian women and gender in a whole different light, and they praise them for their bravery. They praise them for, their, uh, uh, for the commitment that they saw as being the exact same commitment that they had. So it became sort of like a learning experience even for the men that were uh, in those POWs. And, and, and I thought, what better way to kind of uh, showcase this as well that Iranian men go through an educational process, if you will, while they're serving as prisoners of war.
1: And um, although the war ended almost you know, 40 years ago, the consequences of war uh, still haven't ended for many Uh, Of women you talk about in your book. Uh, You have actually dedicated a chapter to this notion titled, uh, War Continues 40 Years Later. Uh, So in what ways would you say that war is still an ongoing experience for those women? Uh, How are they still, um, in a way, fighting a war that ended almost 40 years ago?
0: So there, there are several roles that those women are playing and suffering. In, because they were involved in the war. Number one, well, obviously, we have over 11,000. The number exact is when the book was published, 11,697 Iranian souls who are still missing. Uh, so all the women that these missing men are connected to, they're all suffering. I mean, there's nothing probably worse than not knowing what happens to your loved ones, right? So we know at least that there is about 12,000 Iranian women that are still waiting for their men to come. And if you add their sisters and their Mm. wives, then the number probably goes over, you know, tens of thousands. So that's one group. Another group are the women who are taking care of their disabled family members, men or women. So because Iraq used an unconventional uh, way to fight, meaning using chemical weapons and war agents, uh, there is a large body of not only Iranian men who are suffering from chemical weapons uh, and, and its after effect, but also Iranian women that were involved as nurses, as doctors, as first responders on the front lines, and as people who were residents of towns like in Sardesh and other places, gas uh, other places that were actually um, hit by chemical bombs. So that's another group of people. So men are, uh, women are actually taking care of those men, and they're taking care of the women that were affected. So you have the disabled. The other women uh, that are suffering through are all the women that actually are suffering from PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. One thing that uh, many people don't realize is that the entire Iranian population, regardless of their involvement in the war, regardless of their liking or disliking, approving or disapproving the Islamic Republic and how it's behaving then or it was behaving then or how it's behaving now, regardless, all suffered from some sort of PTSD And that's one thing that's never talked about. And in the case of women that were directly or indirectly involved, they're all suffering from that. I uh, do talk about several cases of uh, domestic abuse because of PTSD that men had experienced or uh, uh, gotten uh, um, after they came back from the war. And uh, these women are abused on a daily basis. Some of them, uh, there are... um, Um, reproductive uh, issues with women that were affected in the war. Uh, Some men cannot bear children, so their married life gets affected by it. Uh, Some of them are suffering from uh, uh, physical damage. So you have disabled men that are paraplegics and these women are still taking care of them. So in some ways, I stand by that, that yes, 40 years after the war started in 1980 and 30 plus years that war has ended or the ceasefire has come into effect, these women continue to fight the same wars and not a bullet is being exchanged right now, right? Since 1988. So uh, yes, the, the war does continue for them. The war is not going to end, no matter what the results of any settlement or any peace negotiation that would come about, it's not going to change a lot. They will continue to suffer. And that needs to be highlighted, which I've tried
1: to do. I should admit, Matteo, that uh, this was a chapter that I personally related to, and it was also the hardest, the most difficult chapter to read for me. Mm-hmm. I had to um, take a couple of breaks between um, reading that, because I have a you know close female family member who has been injured, has been affected in the war physically, mm-hmm. and is still struggling with the consequences of war. Uh, not only her, but also her family. And uh, I wanna come back to this you know emotive um, you know, element of research on war. Uh, But but before that, um, we've been talking about the role of women on the front line so far, right? Right. As equally important as that is uh, women's roles on the home front during wars, not only in the Iranian context in general. Uh, But how did Iran-Iraq war change the lives of Iranian women on the home front?
0: There is a lot that can be said about this, and there are books that can be written about this and I hope people that are listening, uh, especially students or would be students in the future, take this uh, into consideration that despite whatever the Islamic Republic has done, uh, the war provided an opportunity for a group of women that could never imagine or never had the confidence because the society hadn't given them the confidence or their families haven't given them the confidence that they were actually capable of doing things that men do, maybe better. And they performed beyond anyone's expectations in ways that nobody thought they could do. So that group of women, essentially, I call them the marginalized. They were marginalized before uh, the 79 revolution because the overwhelming reforms that the Pahlavi regime brought along and provided for women, which were fantastic, by the way, in some ways were secular in nature and wasn't really friendly towards women who were religious or undereducated or came from the periphery, the marginalized, right? And uh, essentially, the war, for the lack of a better term, provided this opportunity for women to get involved because everybody thought, well, you have an Islamic society now, right? You have an Islamic Republic. And the same father that would have had a very hard time allowing his girl to watch television during the monarchical period, all of a sudden decides that it's a different world, it's a different Iran, and sure she can pick up a gun to go kill the enemy and hang out with a bunch of male soldiers and volunteers that they've never met before. I mean, if that's not revolutionary, then I don't know what that, what it is, (laughs) because in essence, you are creating an environment, a new milieu is, is being presented to these women that had there not been a revolution to this extent that would call itself Islamic, none of these patriarchal, communities would allow their women to participate in it. And that, that says a lot about the part of the Iranian women that nobody has really paid attention to, which, which I've tried to do, at least on the surface anyway, in this book. And uh, for women, I think that was an opportunity that they took for themselves. Nobody dictated to them that you have to get involved in the war in the ways that I explain in the book. The only contextualization that they really get as participants in the war is as reproductive units, as people that, you know, give birth to kids that would become volunteers in the war later. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what the state wanted. But the woman said, no, actually we're a lot more than that. Right. And that was the unintended consequence of involving women in the war or Actually, at some point, Ayatollah Khomeini begging women to get involved in the war because war consumes everybody in societies. It's not just one group of people. And that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, We all pay for our sons and daughters, for our neighbors, kids, cousins that go to war because they come back, if they're lucky, they come back with a slew of uh, images that's going to play into their mind and it's going to make them a whole different person. And that affects the society in general, right? For a mm-hmm. long time. And, and especially in the United States, that's what we experience all the time with people that were involved in the war, in various wars, the latest being the Afghanistan war.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, going back to... Um what I mentioned earlier about the emotional aspect of research uh, on war. Uh, War is obviously one of those topics that is not exactly um, very pleasant to do research on, I'm assuming, uh, because you inevitably come across sources or stories, photos that can be daunting, disturbing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a very emotive topic that uh, surely involves a great deal of uh, emotional labor. So um, what was some of these challenges for you when doing your research? And more importantly, how did you cope with all these?
0: Uh, Wonderful question. Thanks for asking it. Uh, If anybody's been in war or any sort of a violent environment uh, um, in any degree, once you leave that environment and you feel like you're in a safe zone, which immigration for me did uh, in Switzerland, Cyprus, and then in Southern California, um, that trauma doesn't really go away. It gets stored somewhere in your brain. I was just talking to a psychotherapist who uh, uh, specializes in in trauma of the war. And actually, they're thinking about doing a podcast about that. Um, And what happens is from what this psychotherapist was telling me, is that it gets stored in somewhere in your brain and it's sort of like the knot in your shoulder that if you don't massage it out, if you don't work it out, it's just going to stay there. Right. And sometimes it gets triggered by a sudden movement and it might cause you pain in other places. Well, uh, this trauma, uh, call it the trauma tumor, let's say is on everybody's mind, including me because of the involvement in the war and uh, i kind of put it aside for 26 years till 2009 <laughs> when i went back to hormsha and i walked into that mosque mm-hmm. and saw the photos of the martyrs and uh then again i kind of filed it away because i think my subconscious was telling me that maybe it would be too much and once i got you know i got started to look at photos and look at you know, a ton of sources and started reading ton of books and articles and weblogs and what have you about the war. Uh, physically, I felt the PTSD kind of coming back in some way, becoming activated in my body, started losing sleep. Uh, I was very irritable and uh, we have a small, uh, small child uh, uh, at home at the time Uh uh, sort of like a kindergartner of some sort. Uh, and what happened, I would snap back and my wife noticed it. And uh, uh, then I figured, yeah, it's it's all of that stuff that's coming back. And um, it's the trauma that's activated and it's acting out in my behavior. So at at some point, should I say, I wasn't sorry that I started researching it. Uh, I was saddened <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to, to have gone through that because no human should. But I was saddened more even for the people that actually lost people in the war or were suffering from it even now. The person that cannot breathe right because of the chemical war agents or the person that might still have blisters you know, uh, in various parts of their body or the person that cannot have a child because they were in the war, or the person that gets ignored in the society and being called by people that are not very happy with the behavior of the Islamic Republic by its actions, and people confusing many, many facts. That's the sad part. And that added to that trauma. And then I started asking people that write about uh, let's say torture in various prisons, violent acts like that, wars, uh, uh, people that write about uh, domestic abuse or things similar to it. The people that actually research it and write about it actually go through the same trauma in some ways. And it shows itself after you start having headaches, you become very mm-hmm. irritable. You snap mm-hmm. back at people um, you wake up in the middle of the night thinking uh, the images of, you know, in the films that you've seen, or the images in the photos that you've seen, or the eyewitness accounts that people tell about their involvement, they they become extremely, extremely painful. But it's a necessary genre. It is an absolute necessity uh, that people need to, for the lack of a better term, you know, sacrifice in some ways to try to educate the public uh, or to bring back um, the reality of what it was that might get kind of lost in between various organizations and what they want to actually portray as being the truth. And uh, that sacrifice is necessary. If anybody wants to write about wars from any aspect, I think that's, that's bound to happen. And it certainly happened to me too.
1: Thank you, Matteo. Um, there's obviously a lot more in the book and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But before we wrap up the interview, I'd like to ask Matteo whether you're working on something right now or are you thinking about doing a research on a particular topic in the near future?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing that I noticed from this research was we don't know anything about our marginalized women in Iran, particularly. I'm talking about the women that um, were kept in the periphery before the revolution, are kept in the periphery now in a variety of ways. And all of them have a history. And that is the the, 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 the big puzzle or the missing puzzle in women and gender studies in Iran that hasn't got a lot of attention or not at all, actually. And my next project is uh, working on these marginalized women, which is, which is going to take some time. But before that, uh, I'm co-authoring a book about the role of Iranian women in sports because we don't really have history of sports in Iran. Nobody's really taken that on. But uh, I like to you know, find out how... Women actually got involved, Iranian women got involved in uh, modern sports, how well they're doing. And a lot of uh, uh, people, including your listeners, might not know that we have a lot of uh, uh, women, Iranian women, that actually participated in not only uh, international games before the revolution, but even after. Um, we have uh, um, gold, uh, I think it's gold, we have a gold medalist who was Iranian in uh, martial arts in Brazil, that one. And we have the Iranian uh, futsal champions in Asia and many, many others. And I think that would be a really cool and uh, uh, sort of a contributory um, book that I would definitely dedicate to all Iranian women who are kept in the sidelines for a variety of reasons and but the world needs to know about them but more importantly our own people need to know about them
1: sounds like a very interesting project and very important too uh are we going to see a book on Khoram, Chahran, too, that you mentioned you couldn't do justice in the book
0: <laughs> i'm gonna sort of stay away from the war <laughs> a little bit because of uh the what we just talked about, about the trauma uh i would love to do a Sort of like a graphic novel version of the book, mm. uh, because it would it would resonate w- with a lot of people. Uh, it's easier to read and not so academic. Uh, I'm a professor, so I couldn't get rid of the end notes, uh, as yes. you probably can <laughs> appreciate. So I, I wanted something easier for people to pick up and read and learn, and um, it's got interesting things, I think, for a lot of people. So if there are any graphic artists or graphic novel publishers out there get in touch with me
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> to yeah. work on that yeah <laughs> um uh, do you have any further comments matteo any anything you want to add before we say goodbye well i
0: i thank you for the opportunity first of all um i'm i'm delighted that uh, the book is uh, being well received in, uh, in oceania in australia and in new zealand And I look forward to meeting everybody that I've done interviews with or book talks for uh, uh, down and under, as you guys say. Uh, But um, I want the readers to um, read the book from the perspective that I want to introduce Iranian women beyond the concept of is hijab good or bad? Hmm. Uh, I think Iranian women are being limited in so many ways being discussed in the West uh, as being women that are always struggling and they are, and I'm not saying they're not struggling, but at the same time, we have a lot of heroines too, and they should be, they should be known. They're very exemplary people. It might be people that, uh, um, I might not agree with on different levels, but regardless, I think it's a way of celebrating Iranian women and you don't have to be Iranian or Middle Eastern for that matter. Um, New Zealand women, Australian women, uh, people in Indonesia and China, everybody can benefit from understanding what other women do when they're put in a very difficult situation. And the answer is they can do a lot of cool things. They just need to be highlighted and, and become introduced to, to the world.
1: Thank you for that note, Matteo, and thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with me today and sharing your um, insight and your work with our listeners. It was an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Good luck to you.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.